to It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast about Twin Peaks. Only Twin Peaks. Only Twin Peaks and whatever other movies or TV shows we happen to be interested in at the time. So it's not only about Twin Peaks. It's about really anything, but mostly Twin Peaks. But we have to introduce ourselves. I'm Caroline. And I'm Brian. Yes. Hi, guys. Uh, So I thought episode five was really good. Yes, uh, I enjoyed it. I am still not sure if I'm grading these episodes on a bit of a curve, but all I can say is I did enjoy it. Mm -hmm. And it actually felt a little bit like a season one episode. Yes. Maybe not one of the the classics Mm -hmm. like Zen or The Skill to Catch a Killer, but some of the more plot-based episodes that have a lot of people spying on each other and uh, the Bookhouse Boys or Cooper uh, going on a mission, things like that. Yeah, I think there were a bunch of things in this episode that were really excellent. And then our visits with the more interminable storylines were kept to a minimum. You know, we only had like a minute or two with Super Nadine or with uh, Catherine and racist drag. That's right. Yes. So let's talk about the director, Graham Clifford. Yes, I thought he did a great job. Yeah, I did too. And I was surprised to, to look at his uh, resume. Yeah, it's a it's a very good one. Right. He was a longtime editor for Robert Altman, mm-hmm. um, including uh, McCabe and Mrs. Miller, and also the editor on uh, Don't Look Now. Yes, which might be the best edited film ever. Right. And uh, the editing is very important in, yes, in that movie. Yes. So he did a great job there. Of course, I think. Nick Rogue's vision was really driving that movie. And the visual style of that movie has a lot more in common with other Nick Rogue movies than it does with this episode. But Mm -hmm. obviously uh, Clifford uh, was here to to do a job of serving up uh, some, you know, slice of Twin Peaks and to just keep it between the lines, basically. Mm -hmm. And I think he did a really good job. There were uh, a lot of scenes here um, that... It, it felt uh, a little bit like a throwback. Um, some of the elements with Harold almost seemed like uh, an old an old black and white horror classic yes, or something. Yes, I agree. I agree. The tension and the emotions in those scenes were very heightened. Um, really some wonderful acting in those scenes as well, especially from Lars Lynn Boyle. Right, yeah. Like at, in the last scene, we get the Dutch angles as the, the two girls are... are menaced by Harold and he Mm -hmm. uh, becomes this almost Phantom of the Opera type figure who is, uh, it's ambiguous, you know, he, is he, how threatening is he? And he starts to scratch his own face. Yes. Um, Some of the earlier scenes with Harold had this uh, instrument in the background that I ought to know what it is. Mm -hmm. It's almost like a a rapidly tolling little bell or something or a a trilling, keyboard type instrument, uh, but felt like old school horror. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like I Walk With a Zombie or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And so I enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, uh, I thought he did a great job. Um, the The script was by Barry Pullman. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually thought like the, the writing didn't really blow me away in terms of the uh, dialogue. Sure. Um, some of it felt a little clunky or just kind of not that interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, 
uh, I think the, there's a lot of interesting uh, scenes here and, um, and we're going to dive into them, but I think the, uh, there's a lot here that's thematically very interesting. Yes. Compared and, to the last episode. Right. And I think the episode was well constructed. Like I said, yes. the stuff that is, is, and will get kind of annoying was kept to a minimum. So we remember that, oh yeah, the Nadine storyline is going on the, um, you know, Catherine and the mill and Ben Horn storyline is going on, but they didn't let the episode drag with us. This is a very focused episode. And yes. you know, the, the convention for TV writing is you have an A story mm -hmm. that's the most important than a B story. And maybe you'll sneak in a C story or something. Sure. Uh, Twin Peaks has a tendency to have like a a prime, a double prime. Like mm -hmm. there's so many things going on that uh, often get almost equal attention or at least time sure. spent on them. Yeah, um, and you're gradually going back and forth, and it can be either chaotic or if it works well, it's a kind of tapestry. But here, this is an unusually focused episode mm -hmm. that where a lot of time is given to the two trials or the two hearings mm -hmm. and, uh, and Harold, yes. Harold and Donna. Yes. And, and then yes. sort of second to that. Um, and then the getting Audrey back. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Those four things really drive everything. And then we just check in with some other uh, storylines. So let's start with those two hearings because mm -hmm. they're very important. Yes. And I think the, uh, the way you can compare and contrast them is also very important. Right. So first up, uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip the the opening scene mm -hmm. like, with um, Dale seeing the note because it sets up the story later. Sure. What I've been to Leland's hearing. It's at the roadhouse. It's at the roadhouse. This mm -hmm. is interesting. Yeah. It's, I I assume that there was maybe a budgetary issue here. Sure, they probably didn't want to build a whole court courtroom set or find one, but I think it fits. I mean, it. Um, when we were watching it, you said it's the old West. They're right. using the spaces that they have and the resources and people, especially that they have, and that gives it a kind of casual sense. But it also adds to what you could really call corruption. Yes, or at the very least, a collapsing of necessary legal boundaries exactly. that distinguish mob justice from mm -hmm. the idea of impartial justice. Right. I mean, Sheriff Truman, who arrested Leland and charged him, is the one who is speaking in his defense, which makes no amount of sense legally. Right. There, there's a lot here that I think it's probably just bad writing or the way that uh, that TV writers don't understand how the law works. Sure. But or they think it doesn't matter how it works. Yes. But I think that it's really interesting to just ignore that, mm -hmm. ignore the reasons for it yes. and just take it at face value as the reality of this fiction. Mm hmm because yes, all of these, the casualness of it, of the setting and the way that the law is handled mm -hmm. um, without the firm distinctions or boundaries and, and, and walls, um, you know, that, you know, that prevent 
say, the sheriff's department from um, running the show sure. and just railroading a defendant, things mm-hmm. like that. They're, they just break down. Yeah. This is the old West. Um, this is the return of Twin Peaks as a Western. Mm-hmm. And the judge, yeah. the figure of the judge has a lot to do with that as well. Mm-hmm. He's yes. a throwback. He rides circuit as a, I mean, judges don't do this anymore, but he still uh, goes from town to town. Yeah, that's why they're called court circuits. Yes. It's because it used to be that a single judge for one area would go from town to town to hear cases. Yes, exactly. And he still does that. He's a throwback. He dresses in a Western style mm-hmm. with... I think it's a bolo tie. Or he does some, wear a bolo tie. Some such thing. And, and actually some of the other players do as well. The um, the prosecutor that's also in from out of town mm-hmm. wears a cowboy hat. Yeah. And has a bolo tie. Right. And and Royal Dano, who plays the judge, was a character actor in a lot of right. Westerns. And I think Lynch and Frost like using actors like that who have been in a ton of older movies and old genre movies, just because they kind of carry that genre with them. Even if you don't recognize them, you sort of automatically associate them with that kind of story. Yeah, absolutely. And Judge Derwin has been set up essentially as a good guy. Sure. And I don't think he's bad. It's just, I think it's another instance of everybody not really noticing what's in front of them. Yes. I, Right. I started to, in the last episode, I thought, well, he's so obviously a good guy mm-hmm. that, and maybe I'm overcomplicating it. But this episode really uh, reminded me that, no, I'm not overcomplicating it because he makes... It's complicated. He makes some real, uh, he makes one real boneheaded mistake here, mm-hmm. uh, or maybe that's not the way to put it. He makes a huge mistake. Yes. And and some other questionable decisions. And the show present doesn't present it as a mistake, but it it's obviously a mistake once you see how everything plays out. Yes. And I think the seeds are there. Like I know they hadn't told any of the actors at this point what was coming, but I'm pretty sure that they knew what they had planned. Right. Um, in terms of what Leland was going to do. And Leland needs to be revealed as a killer. Yes. So he has to do something that reveals himself as such. Mm-hmm. So he can't just be, in jail. Right, exactly. So Leland gets bail. Mm-hmm. Although, as you pointed out, it's a bail hearing, and yet they don't actually. They don't set any amount or anything like that. They just say that Leland is released on his own recognizance. Yes. Uh, and again, that's one thing that could just be bad writing, mm-hmm. but it almost seems like they even, that the judge not only granted his bail, but decided, ah, the bail doesn't matter. Right. We'll just let him go. Right. Uh, and it's what the judge says is in the background. Mm-hmm. But I mean, well, for one thing, it's important that even though Sheriff Truman is speaking on Leland's behalf yes. improperly, yes, and it's unclear why Leland can be his own counsel mm-hmm. and opted to not have counsel. But at any rate, what Truman does is is argue, argue that he should be that she, he should be granted bail. Mm-hmm. Because of his, because he is uh, an upstanding member of the community, and yeah. then the judge reiterates this. It's kind of in the background where we have a little bit of yeah, but it's comic a, relief. It's an interesting line. Yeah, um, he says that he grants Leland bail because 
of his standing in the community and his pristine public and private reputation. Public and private, yes. Very interesting. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about public versus private. Especially with regards to Leland. And I think, I think we have to think about that. And I think even though at this point, if you're watching the show cold, you don't know that Leland will be revealed as the killer. You do know that Leah, that I'm sorry, Jacques Renault was not the killer. And that the whole premise of, well, Leland's not a threat to anyone anymore. Right. Because, well, he was only a threat to the person he thought killed his daughter. Well, that person didn't kill his daughter. Right. So what happens when they arrest somebody else and Leland is just wandering around out there? Is Leland going to kill that person too? Right. Yeah. It doesn't why, make any why sense. wouldn't he? Leland confessed. Yes. He didn't even deny it. Right. He committed a murder and, but... Uh, here, uh, maybe there's uh, an argument that they, the judge has in mind that he wasn't really in his right mind. He no. was driven mad by grief. But what they're effectively saying is that it's all right for someone like Leland to murder someone like Jacques Renaud. And if Leland ends up murdering whoever the real killer is, well, that'll be all right, too. Yeah, well, they haven't let him off, to be clear. No, of course not. But, but they're they saying are... it's not actually dangerous that he... Right. He's only a danger <laughs> to scumbags. Right. He's only a danger to bad people. Mm -hmm. He's a good person. He's an upstanding member of the community. We know that, that Jacques didn't kill his daughter, but Jacques did other bad things. Yeah, Jacques was a drug dealer. Jacques was... Um, a pimp. Jacques was all kinds of other bad things. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He deserved to die and, mm -hmm. and we hope he rots in hell. Yes. And yes, that's, that's right. And the prosecutor actually, uh, brings up all of his strange behavior mm -hmm. that, and brings up not just his strange behavior, but that everyone saw it. Yes. <laughs> that everyone saw Leland acting, uh, like he was out of his mind for mm -hmm. weeks. Yeah. And no one cared. Yeah. And it's and even if you want to say, well, maybe he should be, uh, we should be lenient, uh, or or maybe it's he, he was insane at the time. Whatever. This is a bail hearing to determine whether he's a danger to other people. And yeah. nothing about his behavior should lead anyone to think that he's not dangerous. Yes. Um. Now, but I don't want to give the impression that what we're saying is, oh yeah, definitely like throw the book at him. Throw the book at him. The point is that he's being treated differently than someone like Leo Johnson. Yeah, and I think the the point about pub the public and private reputation and the public and private life of somebody like Leland is a, is something that's really important and something we should think about. I mean in the shot where Leland learns that he's being released on his own recognizance, Ray Wise's performance is it's so good. It's so good. I mean, it's always so good. He's, he's the MVP. He's amazing, but he doesn't look relieved. He looks smug. Yeah. It's very subtle. Mm -hmm. It's, it's so subtle that I kept thinking, is he acting normal here or not? And what's great about his performance is he, it's just on the line. Yeah. Yeah, it's incredible. And also just the way it's shot, you see him on one side of the screen and then there's a column. And on the other, you see Sarah and Maddie. Yes. And that's important because those are the people Leland is going home to. That's, that's the place you're putting him as opposed to a prison cell. 
And it is assumed by everyone without any questioning that that's a safe place. The mm -hmm. Palmer home is a good place. Whatever dangers there were to the women in that family came from outside, right? not from people like Leland, not from inside the home, but we've got to know that that's just not true. Yes. Well, it's his, uh, his pristine private reputation. Yes. But see, it's, it doesn't make sense to say that because the, his, the private sphere he inhabits is by definition one that Judge Sternwood doesn't see into. Exactly. So when he says, when the judge says private reputation, all he means is, well. I haven't heard anything. Well, and he means like in my private dealings with him, mm -hmm. he's he's always been nice to me. He never murdered me. Yeah, he never molested no, me. And that never, yeah. has no place in, in the, the law, in the no, courtroom. No. And again, I'm saying that not to uh, to say that I, not, not to um, affirm uh, the legitimacy of this hearing or the law underlying it, but simply to point out that by its own terms, yes. what he's doing mm -hmm. is extremely improper. Yes. Somebody like Leland Palmer has the opportunity for personal dealings with the judge. Yeah, exactly. Someone like Leo Johnson or Jacques Renault never has that opportunity. So they never have the chance for the judge to say, well, he's always been nice to me. And, you know, maybe he wouldn't have been. Maybe the judge would still correctly think of both those men as scumbags. But we don't know that. Right. Yeah, let's let's go to Leo's hearing. Yeah. Because this is wild. Mm -hmm. <laughs> this is amazing to me. Yeah. Leo is essentially in a coma. Mm -hmm. Right? Right. He, we learn later that he can make some sounds yes. every once in a while. Yes. Uh, he's in a persistent vegetative state, I think it's safe to say. Mm -hmm. Or as the, as the judge says, he's a heady cabbage. Yeah, they're, so they're trying to decide whether he will be able to um, Whether he's competent to stand trial. Yes. And that, I just want to point out, in case it's not obvious, in real life, this would not be a question. No. <laughs> <laughs> it would not be an argument. I mean, yeah, the prosecutor would not get up and say, yeah, we definitely have to put this person on trial in a Right, coma. right. They would probably have to like make a formal determination at some point just to get it out of the way, I guess. But no, it, it, it would be much faster than this. Yeah, but the judge has to deliberate. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. And to be clear, Leo is a scumbag, mm -hmm. obviously. He doesn't seem to have any redeeming qualities. Yeah. But the problem is you, is the problem in like, focusing on that in this context is mm -hmm. that you think he's a scumbag, unlike, oh, I don't know, someone like Leland Palmer. Right, right. <laughs> when Leo did, uh, Leland did something much worse. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Um, or at least on the same level. I, I, I was thinking of this bit in The Simpsons, and it, it's a flashback episode, and you see, um, you know, Marge and Homer maybe going to the prom together in high school, and Marge ends up going with this, like, really, you know, rich well thought of smart guy who uh, makes a like ugly aggressive pass at her in the car and she slaps him and um, he tears her dress. And uh, I think the guy's name is Artie and he says to Marge, I'd rather you not talk about this, not for my sake, 
but I'm so well thought of that it would damage the town <laughs> exactly. to hear it. And that's kind exactly. of what we're, what we're dealing with here to imprison Leland would damage the town <laughs> to yeah. treat Leo Johnson. Well, would also damage the town. Yeah. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. What we see here is, is not uh, an impartial uh, law being uh, handed down. It's the, it's the town. It's a kind of laundered mob justice. Yes. The town is calling the shots. Mm -hmm. The town, in particular, the town's image of itself. Yeah. And the way that it sees all of these different people as fitting in with its community and who mm -hmm. is upholding the community and who is yeah. um, uh, obstructing the community or can't be integrated into it or is against the community. Mm -hmm. And this is what the prosecutor says. Um, and it's it's so edifying, I think, to to for us to yeah. have the things that we talk about be reflected just pretty straightforwardly in the yes. show. <laughs> like, yeah, we're not making this up. No, it's all there. What the prosecutor says here is chilling. Mm -hmm. He says that the the purpose of a trial isn't just to determine whether uh, the defendant is guilty or not. It's to, um, and I'm paraphrasing here, but it, it's to, it serves a social function. Yeah, it serves to make it, the community whole in a exactly. way. Exactly, and implicitly what he's saying is that the like Leo Johnson's um, right to defend himself is less important than the community's right to find him guilty because that would be satisfying Yes. for them. Right. And it's just so amazing because Leo Johnson is the one who is absolutely not a current threat to anyone. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, but his, his mental state that renders him uh, not dangerous is, is not relevant, mm -hmm. according to the prosecutor. Yeah. Whereas uh, Leland's mental state, which has definitely led him to kill somebody, mm -hmm. 100%. Yes. He admitted it. We all know it. Uh, is actually the reason why he should be out on bail. Yeah. Because it's so tragic that he was driven mad by Because we sympathize grief. with Leland's mental state. Yes. And Leo's current mental state is just what he deserves for being a scumbag. Right. Yeah, so that's that's what the prosecutor argues. And I, the judge doesn't buy it. So right. that's... that's uh, point one for the judge. Point one for the judge. He's, yeah. He, he had a big L with the... Uh, <laughs> Right. The bail hearing. But this one, he, he makes the right call. But he had to deliberate. In the yeah. deliberation, he goes to talk to the sheriff. Yeah, that's and the FBI world in terms of inappropriateness. Over some strong drinks. Yes. My God. Uh, just there at the bar in the roadhouse where anyone could hear what they're saying, probably. Yeah. And, um, oh, I forgot to mention the prosecutor also points out he also brings up the the fact that Leo Johnson may have killed Laura Palmer. Right. Hmm. Which they know is not true. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Just like they know that the guy that Leland killed did not kill Laura Palmer, which complicates the idea that he's not a threat anymore. Yeah, but hmm. yeah, in, in their eyes, someone like Leo might as well have done it. Exactly. It's the kind of thing he would have done. You know, who knows? He probably would have done it eventually. Right. Right. <laughs> Or killed somebody, killed Shelly. 
Right. And it's true. Mm-hmm. He is that kind of person. Yeah. But it's the assumption that uh, he's the, that kind of person, which we define against the other, other people that mm-hmm. aren't. Yeah. And so it's that dichotomy uh, that leads them to uh, let Leland go. And that leads to Maddie's death directly. Mm-hmm. Um, because the, yeah. And again, the point that we're making isn't that they, they both should have been treated harshly or no. even that they both should have been treated leniently. Mm-hmm. The point is that it would never work like that anyway, because the law as we see it uh, in this town and in often in real life right. serves the function mm-hmm. of treating one class of people differently than another class of people. Exactly. Exactly. The, the point of the law, its purpose is to protect people like Leland Palmer and to make their lives go more smoothly and to protect their interests and constrain and punish people like Leo Johnson and Jacques Renault, which means that in a way Leland was acting as an agent of law and order when right. he killed Jacques. That's what they think. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so the point isn't to, yeah, to say, throw the book at, at Leland no. or even to say, let, you know, be lenient with Leo. It's that it doesn't matter really what we think of the disparate outcomes and that it, obviously it's not, fair it's not a fair uh outcome mm-hmm. but there's no like it was never going to be it a was fair never outcome. yeah there that, there was really no alternative that's mm-hmm. just the way it is yeah that's the way it has to be mm-hmm. uh yeah and we see the judge the sheriff and and the fbi all working together here yeah to protect one person and to constrain another person right yeah uh, leading us back to um the the deliberation at the bar mm-hmm. and the judge actually asks Truman, what's the temperature of the town? Do yeah. they want a trial or a lynching? Yeah. Yeah. It's an interesting choice of words there. And Truman says, well, they just want justice. Mm-hmm. But what if he had said, no, they want a lynching? What was the judge asking here? Right. Right. Would that have make a, made a difference? And I also think you have to think about Shelley at Leo's hearing too. And Truman, when they get the good news that Leo's going to be at home, it's not there won't be a trial right away. Shelley is obviously very ambivalent about that yes. because, you know, she decided not to testify against him really because of her and Bobby's brilliant insurance fraud scheme. Mm-hmm. Leo has to be at home. But, you know, Shelley is bright enough to realize that this is a powder keg that she's holding that right. she, you know, she doesn't want Leo at home. She doesn't want to be in the house with him anymore. Right. It, he's dangerous to her. She wants him out of her life. And this is just another thing that the law is not thinking about the, you know, safety and happiness of a young woman like Shelley. Right. Yes. Um, well, that almost seems like an argument for, uh, not well. It's not an argument for it's him not saying trial. Ar- no, it's not really <laughs> an argument for anything. But it, it's he may like there know. may be other options. I mean, mm-hmm. in real life, someone in this state is probably not going to wake up. And if he did, he would not be able to suddenly menace her. He would be mm-hmm. extremely weak with atrophied muscles. So yeah. really, even though the show is kind of playing up like 
the powder keg aspect of it. Mm -hmm. um, realistically, he's not a threat to her. No, I mean, uh, and, and I think at this point, she's more of a threat to him. <laughs> yes, and and also, I I tend to read her ambivalence as less like fear that he's going to wake up, and more just that she wants to be done with this guy. Yeah, she's, yeah, I think she, that's really it. She is in her right to not want to see his face, mm -hmm. to not want to change his diaper. Yep. By this scheme, Bobby's not, not going to be out. doing that. Shelly's going to be doing like, it. Just Come on. to be done with him. <laughs> yeah, he's not. He, you know, he hurt her. It's not her job mm -hmm. to take care of him in Forever. this state. Yeah. It just isn't. Right. And no, she, she she and Bobby have not thought this through no. at all. This might take years. It's just, you know. No, but we do get a nice bit of Lynchian slapstick mm -hmm. with Squiggy getting banged <laughs> up against the wall. Yeah, I, I knew I recognized him when we watched the episode, and it is Squiggy. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm not sure how safe that contraption is. There's some weird cameos in this one. We also yeah. have Van Dyke Parks. As... Um, as Leo's, Leo's defense attorney. Where did they find that guy? I guess he's a public defender. Right, yeah. So, yep. Those are the hearings. Mm -hmm. So we should talk about Donna and Harold. Um, Harold annoys me a lot, but I thought the storyline was done well in this episode. Yeah, I thought the actor uh, did better here. Mm -hmm. That maybe at this point he's got a maybe a better hold on the character and he yeah. can play him with more subtlety. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, so Harold has the diary. Yes. And this is, uh, there's something um, gross about his possessiveness. Yeah. It's, um, I guess in large terms, Harold is certainly not the grossest of the men and boys who have done things to Laura or done things with her, but it's just another sort of thing. It's like Jacoby and the tapes. It's right. like this little proprietary piece of her that he can hoard. Um, even if he knows that letting it go would bring her justice, he won't do it. Right. Yeah. He wants to own her, and mm -hmm. have her tucked away. Yeah. And he actually says later on, uh, that there are things you can't get anywhere. Yeah. Because Donna said, okay, he says he, he grew up in books. Donna mm -hmm. says there are things you can't get in books. Right. He had hint, like. She's flirting. Sex. Yeah. And he says there are things you can't get anywhere, but we dream we can find them in other people. Mm-hmm. And I think that's actually uh, pretty important to the show yes. that there are, that the characters are trying to get something that is impossible and mm -hmm. that creates a sort of projection a projection or dream yes that is put onto other people mm -hmm. and in particular Laura Palmer yeah yeah i think i think that's really true and maybe this is a bit of insight or um Maybe Harold is actually does know himself better than we thought mm -hmm. that he can um, that he can admit to himself that he his interest in other people and getting their stories is trying to fill up a void within himself right. in some way. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's a lot here about suppressed desire. Mm -hmm. His own suppressed desires that keep him inside. Yes. And how he has almost eroticized that that situation. Mm -hmm. Because that's that's the zone where he has power. Yeah. Where he controls everything. Yeah, I think now that you're saying that, I think the fact that he raises orchids is very uh, thematically correct. Um, they're, they're hothouse flowers. They need a lot of care. They need a specific environment. Um, but that means he controls them. He controls their growth. Um, right. they don't, they're never outside with the rest of nature. They're always inside with him. Right. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, the, the, maybe the, the obvious analogy is that he's a hothouse flower as well, but mm -hmm. really it's that he controls them. Yeah, that's it's what he would like other people to be, maybe right. especially young women. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It's he. I, I mean, I don't want to forget that he's a pathetic figure, and when Donna playfully tries to draw him out, thinking mm -hmm. he'll be fine. Yeah. He really just freezes up. Mm -hmm. So he is certainly a troubled person, mm -hmm. but uh, but he draws people into the place where he has control. Yes. And where there are secret uh, passages and things like that. Mm -hmm. And, but his, his anxiety about desire is mirrored here by Donna. Yeah. With her, her soliloquy. Mm -hmm. And I love this scene. Yeah. Laura Flynn Boyle is really fantastic in it. I, and I think her story just reveals so much about Donna's relationship with Laura and her thoughts about her, her jealousy, her love for her, her kind of eroticization of Laura and their friendship. Um, I think it's so complicated and so interesting. Right, because the story she tells is one of Laura kind of pushing her or dragging mm -hmm. her into the performance of sexuality. Yeah. And it's it's performance, not just not just sexuality and participation in sexuality, but performing it for other people. Right, and that that uh, thought is both scary and yet tantalizing mm -hmm. to Donna. Yeah, and there's a sense that she's being drawn into something adult too soon. Yes, which is what children often want mm -hmm. or think they want. Yeah, I, I love that this story she tells it it somehow has a sense of danger and yet is very innocent it is and it's it's it sort of is uh it's like a narrative jujitsu because given what we know about laura it seems so dangerous what what could happen what could happen and that's um you know and that there's it's not just two couples there's like three boys mm -hmm. um and laura kisses two of them right and it's it's similar to to uh, the scene uh, at the at the roadhouse, or uh, it's they similar start to the at scene the roadhouse and, and fire they walk with else. Me. Yeah, but they were a little older at that time. Mm -hmm. And and yet at the end, it it's about love. Yeah, you know they're doing all these sexy things, and they they they're naked and and. But she's also afraid, so she like with is withdrawing, mm -hmm. and that's a beautiful moment where, 
Well, first Donna stands up and is literally imitating Laura's dance. Yes. And that's her desire to be Laura, mm -hmm. to be what she sees as someone who is freer and confident and confident, and someone who can own their sexuality and use it. Mm -hmm. And it's even more complex because she's now literally using her sexuality to manipulate Harold. Right. Exactly. Um, who I do feel a little sorry for here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, because this is absolutely what she's doing. Mm -hmm. But at any rate, in the story, she gets up, she's dancing. It, it actually reminded me of Audrey's dance as well. Yeah, I was going to say. It, it's almost like there's this same wavelength that mm -hmm. Audrey and Laura and Donna can occasionally dial into. Yeah, yeah. And Which is some kind of ecstasy of, of passion where you're it's like you're riding the wave mm. and then you're almost in a trance mm -hmm. by with this flooding of uh, emotion mm -hmm. and danger. Mm -hmm. But in that moment, you feel like you're in control Yeah, and you're kind of moving toward the dark and back from it and toward and back in a rhythmic dance. Mm -hmm. um, and you're in this beautiful stasis. Yeah. Uh, but then Donna is afraid mm -hmm. and she literally moves backwards mm -hmm. from the camera. This is well blocked here. Yeah, it's really well done. She actually uh, come, comes out of focus a couple times. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I like that effect. Yes. I think it's, yeah, there's something uh, beautiful about it. Mm -hmm. She's pulling away from the camera. And, but then the, the boy comes and he kisses her mm -hmm. and that's it. Yeah. And the boy is sort of tender with her and, right. and kind. He's saying things to her, mm -hmm. probably comforting her. Yeah. She can't even hear it because the kiss was so great. Mm -hmm. And, and all of a sudden, instead of a story about, um, teenage girls being taken advantage of or getting in over their head, it's a story about love and, and this very innocent desire yes for love mm -hmm. and the kind of transcendent feeling of when you fall in love for the first time right and how sex is part of it but not all of it mm -hmm. um and it's all it's all tangled together yeah you can't really and the danger is tangled in it as well yeah and that's why i think it's so it's such a fascinating story with regards to Donna's feelings about Laura because you you expect it to be one thing. You expect it to be kind of a dangerous story about Laura being a bad girl and Donna right. seeing that or being drawn to it. But eventually it's a story about a really kind of beautiful experience that Donna wouldn't have had without Laura. Yeah, that, yeah, exactly. That Laura kind of gave to her. Right. And that she's grateful for. Yeah. Right, and those things about Laura, that mm -hmm. she was precocious or um, reckless or whatever, we're seeing another side to that. Yeah, yeah, she and was that, brave. And she was, and yeah, and so it starts out being almost prurient or like, mm -hmm. yeah, these, these girls don't know what they're getting into. And then yeah. it's, by then it's like, oh, this is just why teenagers do. Yeah, and that, you know, 
I mean, I think the minister at Laura's funeral said something about how she was impatient for right. life. And, and there are so many ways you can make that seedy or dark um, when you apply it to Laura's sexuality, that she was almost, you know, voracious or something. Um, and that it was all acting out of trauma. But um, you can also see another side of it as Lara, as someone who was a person who really went after that feeling. Right, yes. Um, who wanted it so desperately and was brave enough to try to take it when right. she could and wherever she could. And then that can be a good thing. Right. And if she was going to be sexualized anyway, yeah. why not chase that that feeling, that mm -hmm. momentary feeling right. of being in control? And desiring and being desired and being at desired. the same time. And right. Yeah. Right. And, and in a context where it's, even if there's some danger still, comparatively, it's... Mm -hmm. It's still innocent. It's just teenagers. And well, actually, they were twenty, so yeah. <laughs> I guess that is kind of creepy. No, a little bit. How old? How old were they? Donna said they were fourteen. Oh, jeez. Okay, yeah. I wasn't tracking the ages. Fourteen, mm -hmm. twenty. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, that complicates it a little bit. I but... think it. I think it does. I think it does. But I. I don't think it's meant to be. A sinister experience. No, it's in the fiction. That's part of the danger, but then Donna was not mm -hmm. hurt. No. Because all she got out of it was this, all the lead up that was mm -hmm. thrilling to her. Yeah. And then the kiss mm -hmm. that made her fall in love with this guy. Yeah, even if it was only for a minute. Right. Mm -hmm. And even if it, it's probably good that they didn't actually have a relationship. Yep, exactly. With that age gap. Mm-hmm. Um, not to get into age gap discourse. Sure, sure. But yes. for her, it's not... In general, in real life, 20-year-olds should <laughs> no. not be in relationships with 14-year-olds. I'm no. sorry, I'm putting that line down. Right, but yeah, but that's not the point. Because for her, that did happen. For her, that experience was like this first <laughs> first taste of love. Mm -hmm. So bittersweet. Yes. You know, yes. if... Uh, <laughs> That's a country song. I don't no, know if anybody listeners have. I know, but I, I no, mean, Dina Carter. That's right, and I I think it's a complicated story, right. and I think Donna's feelings about it are obviously complicated, and I think they are probably more complicated now that Laura is dead and she's finding out more about her. Right, and maybe in hindsight, it seems more dangerous than it did at the time. Exactly, exactly. And yet, what what persists, what lingers, is the the sweetness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Although then her cigarette is burnt down, the ashes drop. Right. And for Lynch, that's usually a, a negative symbol or image that's associated with passion overflowing into and, and destroying itself. Yeah. There's a lot of that in. It's uh, very phallic, isn't it? Oh, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah. But I was thinking of. Um, just in general, there's lots of fire imagery mm -hmm. in, um, in uh, Wild at Heart. Yeah, of course. Although that also has a happy ending. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Mm -hmm. um, but then also in Fire Walk With Me, uh, after that scene at the, that starts at the roadhouse mm -hmm. and then they go to a different bar, yeah. I think the we see the aftermath of like all the, the cigarette butts mm -hmm. and ash on the floor. Yeah, right. So I do think 
that we're supposed to connect those a bit and see that, um, yeah, this this desire is is dangerous mm-hmm. um, and is that Donna had been playing with fire and that she's playing with fire in this scene right in now scene because now. she is playing on her own attractiveness and her genuine attraction to Harold and trying to maybe turn it into something useful for her. Yes. And, and if it seems like uh, I'm kind of uh, talking out of both sides of my mouth or contradicting myself and saying, well, it was dangerous because of the ash, but also it was innocent. No, I think it, the great thing about this show is it's, that- It's discursive. It has both yes. ideas at once and they're in dialogue with each other. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's what's so great about this show. Another show would, too many shows, even shows considered great, I mm-hmm. think, have a one view of what's happening that they want to hit you over the head with. Yeah. And Twin Peaks, even even when it's not being directed by Lynch, it still has this complexity and richness. Yeah. Where it's it's both. Yeah, and I mean it's innocent and right. it's dangerous. And and Donna feels both ways about it. She feels it. both ways. And and I feel both ways about it too. Yes. Look, if I had a fourteen year old daughter who yeah. and I found out that she had gone skinny dipping with a twenty year old yes. man. <laughs> I would not be happy. I would not see that as innocent at all. Right. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. But I think so much of being of growing up is getting yourself into situations that you're not ready for. Yeah. Um, and then you get like a glimpse into, oh, this is the adult world and I am not ready for this. I'm gonna go back to being a teenager now. Yes, and that's why it's up to adults to leave teenagers alone. Yeah, well that's, it's precisely because it's innocent because she's just a girl who falls in love when Mm -hmm. she's kissed once. Mm -hmm. And that shouldn't, it seems like this guy didn't take advantage, but we know that there are plenty of men, almost every man, Mm -hmm. (laughs) except for Big Ed, I guess, and, uh, and Doc Hayward. Mm-hmm. Uh, who are taking advantage yeah. of the, this desire to be loved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Certainly in Laura's case, mm-hmm. everybody took advantage of that. Yeah. All right. So that that was, uh, I mean, we can't get into how this all unfolds. That Yeah. The diary, and, and poor Maddie trying to break in. Donna, this is another scheme that was not well thought out. Um you know, Maddie breaks in to kind of get the diary when Donna is distracting Harold, but it doesn't oh, work. Yeah, I did want to point out something that, I, that always struck me as odd, that uh, the plan involves Donna shining a flashlight, but she can't do it while Harold's in their room. Mm-hmm. So we see Donna and Harold looking at an orchid. Mm-hmm. It's actually some nice editing here. Yeah. Um, not, not at the level of Don't Look Now, but... Was a close-up of Donna's eye looking at the orchid, mm-hmm. and and they're you know obviously they're it's all sexual. They're like talking about the li- the lower lip and yes, they're both like touching the the mm-hmm. lower lip with their fingers mm-hmm. and talking about moisture and pollination. Yes. Then all of a sudden, Harold says, uh, "I gotta go." Right. <laughs> <laughs> and. I thought, what do you that, think happened? Is that bad writing? Because obviously they need him to not be in the room while she shines a flashlight. Yeah. And they didn't really give him a, he didn't even like come up with a reason. Right. But 
there is something that makes a lot of sense, which yeah. is that uh, he got a little overexcited. <laughs> I mean, look, they were talking about too much moisture is mm -hmm. an invitation. That's yes. literal dialogue uh -huh. right before this. Yes. And yeah, he. Uh, it's like when Bruce Willis was dead at the end of Sixth Sense. Mm-hmm. He just in his pants. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> that's that's my theory. And I'm I I think that's probably the one that makes the most amount of sense. Right. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and then obviously Maddie is is there. There's mm -hmm. some actually some funny stuff with Donna making faces and trying to tell Maddie how to open the bookcase. Yes. And uh, then Harold comes back, and all of a sudden it's like a horror movie, and we talked about that. Yeah, and he's like fit for the opera. Some great screaming from Cheryl Lee, as always. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yep. So, and that's, I liked I like this story, mm -hmm. uh, this storyline in this episode. Yeah. I think it all worked just fine. Yeah, which is good, because it's wrapping up. Mm-hmm. So... The other big storyline was the extraction of Audrey. Yes, which is another thing I'm glad to be wrapping up. They really drew it out. Yeah, in in a way that I don't think was 100% effective. No. It really just felt like it was being drawn out. Yes, and I don't have too much to say about this. Mm -hmm. um, there is some... Uh, some some funny moments with Ben Horn where, oh yeah, because we have Tojimura. Right. We, uh, we don't have to talk about that. But it, where did Catherine get $5 million? I don't know. Where did she get that wig? Anyway, <laughs> I think it's funny when Ben Horn looks at the check and says, oh, million, huh? Five million, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, never any <laughs> And, and then later he says, he looks at the check again and says, good day's work. Yeah, he will take- <laughs> Good day's work. He will take any motherfucker's money He's they're working giving it so away. Hard. Yeah, working so hard, Ben Horn. All right. Can't um, even rescue his own child. Yes, yeah, so anyway, uh, Dale has, he finds the note while he's doing upside down yoga, remembers mm -hmm. what he forgot mm -hmm. or I guess he just didn't notice it because it'd been pushed under the bed. Yeah. And he, so now he knows where Audrey is. So he doesn't have to just show up at the appointed time mm -hmm. with the briefcase and get uh, assassinated right. with uh, Jean Renault's weird taxi driver knife contraption. Yeah. He avoids all that because he... He can just go straight to One-Eyed Jacks. Go straight to One-Eyed Jacks. Doesn't tell Ben about this plan, which is, it turns out to be wise. Yes. Because Ben has Hank tailing him. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Like Hank was pretty useless. It's like he just stood around and watched what was happening. He didn't try to intervene. Yeah. Which is smart. Mm -hmm. But <laughs> I'm not sure he uh, was uh, henchman of the month in that moment. No, I think Hank is actually a pretty poor henchman. Yes. He, I mean, he has a gift for survival. I'll give him that. But mm -hmm. um, he mostly seems to pawn the hard work off on other people. That's right. Like, you know, Leo or whoever. Yeah, now Leo's, now Leo's a cabbage. A, a cabbage. Um, and yeah, otherwise he doesn't really do much. I don't think he's a very good employee. Well, he's a criminal. Yes. And that's the problem with I, employing criminals. <laughs> He's only out for number one. Yeah. You hope that there's honor among thieves. Sure. And yet, turns out there never is. Mm. No, I think 
sometimes, but not in this case. No. Um, so, yeah, um, Truman and Cooper get to One Eye Jacks, um, where they're doing some renovating to make some <laughs> a Tiberian oh, yeah. bath, whatever depravity that. <laughs> Portends. I forgot the sign that yes. says like pardon our mess. Pardon our mess. <laughs> the sign of the future Tiberian baths. Yeah. <laughs> what the hell are they gonna do there? I love that. Um I actually we haven't talked yeah, about this. I know what they're gonna do in the Tiberian baths. I've seen Caligula. Right, yeah. And, uh, yes. Uh but the uh the set design here at One Eye mm -hmm. Jacks is very good. Yes. It seems labyrinthine. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's uh, obviously inspired by Alice in Wonderland. Yeah. And lots of reds and pinks. Yes, florals. This, yeah. Mm -hmm. We see more of like the uh, the playing card motif. Right. On yes. the walls. An oppressive wallpaper. Mm hmm. We also see at One Eye Jacks, and I wonder whether this is deliberate too, considering other things that have happened in this episode, but just a lot more middle aged men being entertained <clears throat> by the girls. Yeah. Um, just well, yeah, that's that's the clientele. They wanted to yeah underline mm -hmm. that. Oh, this is. I think I took it as underlining f for Cooper because it's Cooper mm -hmm. seeing this. Yeah, They're like oh, this is where like the people people in power come here. Yes, it's it's not low lives like Leo Johnson right. or Jacques Renault in like leather jackets and I don't know hoodies and bandanas right. or something. It's. It's respectable men with pristine yes. public and private reputations. Yes, it's it's the the upholders of the town mm -hmm. and the centers of power and money are are entangled here and implicit yes. are implicated. I mean, mm -hmm. in, in what happens here. Yep. And yeah, and you were you were uh, you know implying. Leland, mm -hmm. and we don't know if Leland ever went to One Eye Jacks. It would not shock me if he had, considering who he did so much work for. Right, uh, and if he did it, it would probably just be um, out of uh, caution. Mm -hmm. Because in Fire Walk With Me, we see that Leland, he did visit sex workers. Yep, yeah, and that it's Leland who does, not... It seems very clear it's Leland. Mm -hmm. Not Bob. Yes. And uh, I guess, I guess those, well, right. Were they of age? Well, one of, he, well, we won't get into this. Yeah, we don't but, have to. you know, um, it's still, it's sleazy. It's not just that he was seeing a sex worker, but like, I don't know what her age was. I don't remember. But, you know, she's, she's living alone. She's not like right. somebody who is still in high school and living with her parents like Ronette or Laura at right. that time. But she but brought she in knows teenagers. Them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. She brought in teenagers that right. were going to be part of the deal. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yes. So if she's, she's older than them, it's not by much. Right. And I doubt Leland knows how old she was. Yeah, the point being, Leland is no different from these other businessmen. Exactly. You see roaming the halls, mm -hmm. the, roaming the future side of the Tiberian baths. Yes, Christ. So they, there's an action sequence here, mm -hmm. which is uh, kind of clunky. I enjoyed it. It's yeah. Like, I'm old enough to have watched and enjoyed uh, clunky TV action. Oh, yeah before i don't know before alias or before there was any expectation that tv action would 
be realistic or or not realistic but cool or yeah. cool there's some cool moments here though like mm -hmm. i did uh i definitely i didn't cheer exactly but uh was very glad when hawk saved the day at the end yes god thank thank god for hawk and uh he just had yeah he had a couple good moments here we haven't seen much from hawk lately he's been on the road that's right he was looking into the looking trying to find bob mm -hmm. At the at Pearl Lake, mm -hmm. and instead he uh, talked to two old ladies, two retired school teachers, mm -hmm. presumably older women. Yeah, perhaps uh, Mrs. Tremond or or Chalfont. Chalfont, possibly. Who knows? Who knows? They they, uh, they fed him a lot of chamomile tea, so mm -hmm. he had to use the bathroom. Right. <laughs> and then and then he saves a day because. Mm -hmm. Uh, he could tell that Cooper and Truman were being, uh, were keeping a secret from him. Yeah, yeah, and he's the only competent one of the bunch when it comes to defending himself, probably. So, right. So yeah, he he took out took out that bodyguard with uh, some kind of throwing knife. Mm -hmm. And I thought I thought that was pretty cool. I thought it was pretty cool too. Yeah. Yes, and but there's not much else of interest here. We see uh, Jean Renault is, you know, scheming, and he killed Blackie. Yes, that was always part of his plan. Mm -hmm. He was gonna kill Audrey. Yeah. So it's good that she was, she was rescued finally. Mm -hmm. Finally. Oh, and she says my prayers. Yes. It's very sweet. It is sweet. And he he. Finally, seems actually concerned, mm -hmm. uh, so concerned that he punches what's her name. <laughs> yeah. well, she was she was gonna come at him with a knife. Yeah, she was. Um, it's a nice moment that in the other show they would show Cooper like seeing her reflected somewhere, mm -hmm. and that's how he knew she was gonna do that. But right. in this show, Cooper just knows. He just yeah, he's just got good instincts. Yeah, mm -hmm. because he doesn't even look behind him he nope. just grabs he mm -hmm. reaches behind him yep. to grab her hand yep clocks her out that's not a phrase no. cold cold, cold coxer. coxer yeah is there a clock related punching phrase oh. cleaned her clock he cleaned her clock. <laughs> i don't know <laughs> he cleaned her clock yeah uh yeah uh fixed her drywall whatever mm -hmm. painted her wagon that's right <laughs> yep and, and they get audrey out of there and save the day so here's a question. Mm -hmm. We've been criticizing law enforcement and the law. And we'll keep doing it. In this episode. A cab. <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, that's not what this podcast is about. But it is uh, it is what Twin Peaks is about in part. Mm -hmm. We see, uh, I mean, yeah, the hero is an FBI agent. Yes. And we've been uh, offering a criticism. But I don't want to be unfair uh no in this episode they rescue audrey yes so the question is is this uh, a case where law enforcement came through i mean i think it's important to think about the fact that technically it's not law enforcement doing it because they're not acting as law enforcement formally they are acting as bookhouse boys which is their sort of ancillary arm for activities that can't be sanctioned by the law yes 
Although it's so unclear to me why it has to be unofficial. Mm -hmm. Audrey was. I mean, I know kidnapped. why. I know why Ben Horn wants it to be unofficial. Right. Yeah. But the question is, like, why isn't Cooper questioning that? Once, yeah, Cooper is an FBI agent. He once he knows someone's been kidnapped, mm -hmm. I'm sure he can cobble together a probable cause or whatever. Right. Uh, and she, and now he knows that she is has been transferred. Uh, well, she's been transferred to Canada. Maybe mm -hmm. that's the issue. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's, if it were over state lines, mm -hmm. that would be a reason for the FBI to get involved. Right. Because in Canada, maybe it's a little tricky. That's mm -hmm. probably what it is. Yeah, right. And I think there's also, you know, I mentioned this in the episode where Ben asks Cooper to do this. Ben kind of makes allusions to, I know you have a special relationship with Audrey. Right. There's a hint of blackmail in that. Um, Cooper knows that he has not had sex with Audrey. In fact, he turned it down, but right. there would be a lot of questions if Ben were to yes. decide they needed to happen. Right. And, and what if uh, Ben somehow found out that Audrey had been naked in Cooper's bed? Right. What is Cooper, North. what is Cooper's, uh, explanation for that going to be, especially when they look at his room and they find out, Oh, look, there's a note. Right. My special agent, love Audrey. Yeah, why did she? Why did she give you that note? Right, Agent Cooper. Mm-hmm. What did you know about where she was going? Right, but wouldn't that be a reason for Cooper to get someone else involved and mm -hmm. not do it personally? Yeah. And the fact that he wants to handle it personally is proof that he has uh, feelings for Audrey. Yeah. It, it's he hasn't acted on them. It's not improper in that sense, but it's improper in that it's clouding his judgment mm -hmm. uh, and he's no longer impartial. Yeah, I think I think that's part of it. Yeah, so they save the day, but it, you know, there's not even really an argument that, I mean, no one else could have handled this. Mm -hmm. Or- No one else who was inclined to handle it. Like Ben owns that business. He could have just gone in. Yes. And gotten her back. Well, no, because they were... They were blackmailing him. He, Ben didn't know she was at one Ajax. That's true. I think. Uh, but I think it's not that hard to figure out. He, he I mean, he's the boss, but they, they have her, they have his daughter, so he wants to comply. Mm -hmm. Well, that's why he sends Hank. Yeah. He wants Hank to, that's his scheme, right? Mm -hmm. He's going to deliver Cooper. They will yeah. kill Cooper. Yeah. Which I think Ben wants, so that's not clear why. I just think Ben, ben just doesn't care. And then Hank will go in yeah. and kill Jean Renault. Mm -hmm. Get Audrey and the briefcase. And the briefcase. Importantly. Yes. So I don't know. The show doesn't focus on the legality of this too much. and mm -hmm. doesn't. Even, so there's not even really any kind of uh, gesture at saying, well, it has to be this way. Yeah. There's no like 24 bomb, mm -hmm. ticking bomb scenario where it has to happen this way and not yeah. another way. Where we right. have to, we just have to. Sometimes uh, men of the law have to break the law, and that's just the way it is. Right. Especially after last episode where uh, Cooper was very sternly admonished mm -hmm. Doc Hayward mm -hmm. for sympathizing with Leland. Yeah. Saying murder's murder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and also the beginning of this episode where we 
are told quite explicitly that the law itself is not the point. Protecting right. the community and making the community whole is the point. And whatever we have to do to do that, maybe it's okay. Right, yes. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Uh, you'd like to think that they would do this for Shelley as well. But I don't know. I don't know. And and also you you have to think of all of these young girls as kind of foils for Lara, especially Audrey, because she's been retracing Lara's footsteps to try to find out what happened to her. And she comes the closest to experiencing what Lara actually experienced, right. which is being assaulted by her own father. Yes. Um, and she is rescued. She's rescued. She gets the big dramatic rescue that Lara never got. And that Maddie doesn't get either. And that Maddie doesn't get either. And that Shelly doesn't really get either. Shelly gets more like a more of a whimper than a bang. Right, yeah. So uh, again, mm -hmm. it's it's the law coming through, but only coming through by not being legal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's law enforcement moving outside the law. Yeah um due to self-interest mm -hmm. and so it's the right result for the wrong yeah, reasons right and again the point isn't to say what they could have done differently the point is that merely that whenever someone like hooper brings up the impartial the impartiality of the law mm -hmm. we don't have to believe it right because no one believes it no at least of all cooper him. right exactly you know, or at, at the very least, it's it's very complicated. And the law, mm -hmm. the law, as we when we talk about the law, we're actually talking about um, a system of rules and ways that those rules are customarily broken. Yeah. In practice. Mm -hmm. Right. And and not not something that's in in a in a book somewhere, mm -hmm. but the law is practiced. Yes. Yes. And how it serves self-interest and community interest mm -hmm. um, and class interest. Yeah. And yes, we're, and we're, we're glad that Audrey is safe. Yeah, we're safer. Safer. She's going to have to uh, go through withdrawal, I guess. Yeah, and have um, a conversation with her father. Well, by the way, she's safe because she's returned to her father. Yeah. Who set up this whole situation to begin with. And yeah. Almost... And that's that's especially interesting when you look at Audrey as a foil for Lara, because at the very end of the return, Cooper tries to manufacture a similar big dramatic rescue yes. for Lara, and it doesn't work. And I think one of the reasons it doesn't is because, yeah, again, he's taking her, he tries to take her home, which is where her yeah. rapist is. Yeah, now I now I feel stupid. It's so obvious now. Like, oh wait, they saved her by taking her home to yeah, Ben fucking Horn. To Ben fucking Horn. Jesus. <laughs> I keep trying to like, yeah. I keep second guessing myself. I'm like, well, you know, surely the show has more positive feelings about law enforcement than I do. Mm -hmm. But I'm if not you sure. actually look at what happens mm -hmm. and what actually happens. Yeah, and and don't pay attention to the music cues mm -hmm. or like the the you know the strings or whatever behind Harry Truman when he talks about how great Leland Palmer is. Yeah, that are telling you to react in a certain way. Mm -hmm. Like, don't listen to that. Yes, think about what actually happens and what 
will actually result from what's happening. Yeah, and by the way, Lynch is not above a sarcastic music cue. Oh, absolutely not. No, not at all. So you can't always just say, well, the music here is saying that Truman is giving a stirring speech that's mm -hmm. heartfelt and yes. he's doing the right thing. Truman is one of, if not the most dumb and easily manipulated people Which we on saw the, in the last show. Episode. Yes. Yes, he doesn't know what the hell is going on. So Truman stands up and says, 100% Leland is not a danger to anybody. I have never trusted a criminal in my life. Like, obviously, <laughs> you should do the opposite of what Sheriff of Truman course. says. Yes. And Cooper should know that. But mm -hmm. Cooper just sees Truman because Cooper... As, uh, He's, Cooper is bought in to the idea of this town as a place full of virtuous people who have it all figured out and who take care of each other and stand by each other. Because Cooper, I think, is someone who he has had to like harmonize all this dark and light within him mm -hmm. as a someone who commits violence yes. on behalf of the state, but also has these ideals mm -hmm. um, that he tries to live up to. Yep. Uh, of treating people kindly mm -hmm. and, and also even a kind of higher calling yeah. of spirituality. Yes. And uh, at times the show almost presents that as, some, as, as something without tension. Mm -hmm. like he's just achieved this balance. Right. And it's beautiful. Yes. But at other times, I think it's clear that there is a tension there because Cooper is highly intelligent. Mm hmm. He's smart enough to know how complex the world is. Yes. And like a lot of intelligent people, therefore he romanticizes simplicity. Mm. And he sees Truman as someone who is uh, just a straight shooter. Yep. He's not bogged down in the nuance mm -hmm. or complexity. Mm -hmm. He just has a gut instinct of what's right and wrong. and. It's completely romanticizing Truman. Yes. It's not that Truman is bad. No. Truman is just a guy. Yeah. And not a very smart guy. No. A guy who goes with his gut and his gut is usually wrong. Mm hmm He's very susceptible to manipulation by people he feels he has a reason to trust. Right. He does not have good instincts about trusting people. Yeah. Right. But Cooper trusts him mm -hmm. because Cooper doesn't see that yeah. for all his powers of observation exactly cooper sees what he wishes he was yeah yeah i think that's it i think that's it someone that simple and earnest but i think that uh judge sternwood is what cooper actually is yes in that he is somebody who yes also probably sees those contradictions but has kind of made his peace with his place within a contradictory system. Yes, but someone, even then, Judge Sternwood is not wise enough to see that his position has biased him. That's true too. And so he uh, sets off a chain of events that leads to Maddie's death. Mm -hmm. That's true So too. there's even if, even looking at Sternwood as like the wiser version of Cooper. I'm not sure that he's the wiser version of Cooper. I think he's maybe, I think he's just an older version of Cooper. Right. He he can at least look at Twin Peaks and say, this is a place where bad things do happen. Yes. It's not heaven. Mm -hmm. It may be better than other places. Right. But it's not heaven. Mm -hmm. He's smart enough to know that. Yes. But there's no, there's no character in Twin Peaks that 
is completely good or um, completely wise or who doesn't make mistakes. I think maybe Judge Sternwood's problem is that he recognizes that Twin Peaks is a place where there are where there is both good and bad, but he is completely unequipped for recognizing which is which. He thinks he has a system for recognizing That's them, right. but it's not a correct one. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If there's any like character who's completely good or close to it, it would be Andy. Yeah. And really Cooper should try to be more like Andy. Mm-hmm. And maybe he does become more like Andy in the return. Maybe, maybe that's what happens. Yeah. Uh, but at any rate, it, it's Andy who's chosen mm -hmm. to get a vision of the White Lodge. Yes. Not Cooper. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, so is there anything else we wanted to touch on here? Uh, more Andy and Lucy drama, but not a whole lot more. We find out that Andy's sperms are working again. <laughs> He's pretty happy about that. He's a whole damn town. It's a whole damn town. Yeah. Episode title, maybe. <laughs> um, That's right. No, I think calling the episode a whole damn town works on a couple of levels. Um, uh, it takes a village. Uh-huh. Um, Lucy has left for a couple days, maybe to visit her sister, but maybe to get an abortion. <gasps> Speaking of which, there's a lot of people giving information over the phone that I just don't think they would. Yeah, I don't know. You mean when he calls the phone and they say... Oh, yeah, your sperms are fine. Okay. Like, <laughs> I just don't... Well, he's asking. Well, sure, but I, I don't know. Would the receptionist have access to all of those I records? Don't, I don't know. I feel like she would have to, like, ask Doc Hayward to call him. Um, you know, she wouldn't even necessarily know what the... Right. What the information meant maybe she had been given a message to relay yeah and also i think like an, ab allowed to do that. an abortion clinic would not answer the phone and say harry and bill's abortions <laughs> or whatever he says um it just doesn't work that way abortion clinics get get bombed and they right, get harassed yeah. pretty yeah. regularly in this country and especially you know in the early 90s it was pretty rampant um they, they would call it would be called like you know the yeah, be, women's yeah. health clinic or something yeah it wouldn't be dnes or us yes <laughs> is that what it is dne yeah dv i don't know dnc dnc mm -hmm. okay see yeah. well they shouldn't call me that's for sure <laughs> no but um <clears throat> excuse me yeah well i was surprised they used the word abortion on television because they didn't use it in the last episode. Right. Which makes me think that it was more of a writing choice than a censorship choice to make Dick Tremaine just be too much of a dumbass to- A coward. A coward to just say the word. He's gonna offer it, but he can't say it. Mm -hmm. Remember Knocked Up? Yeah, they like wouldn't say it. was like important part of the plot. Like, mm -hmm. Why doesn't she get an abortion? Yeah, and, and they, they don't even say, say the, the word. word. Right. It's so cowardly. Yeah, and that was like decades later. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. Anything else? Uh, Nadine, there's not much to super say. Super Nadine. Nadine thinks she's in high school and she also has super strength. That'll yep. continue. Keep an eye on that one. Yes. James, going is, nowhere. James is not very bright. 
doesn't seem to really know what's going on. Doesn't seem to have an emotional emotional reaction to anything that happens. No, no. Like he's, I think he says "wow" or something. Yeah. <laughs> but his face is blank. Mm-hmm. But he's also completely out of the loop with both Donna and Maddie. Get better acting point. from the Log Lady's log. No. <laughs> <laughs> It's more expressive. That's not quite true. He has some expressions. He has like two. Yeah. He has he has confused and sad and confused. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, I think that's enough for this episode. Yes. So we will sign off. Yeah, we'll see you in a couple of weeks. And for now, we wish you nothing but the very best in all things. Yep. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye. Oh, Mersey, Dots and Dosey, Dots and Little Lambsy Divey, a Kiddly Divey too, wouldn't you? Now, if the words sound queer and funny to your ear, a little bit tumble and jivey. Say, bears eat oats, and does eat oats, and little lambs eat ivy. I'm back. Back and ready.